This is part 10 of The Horse and the Rider. It's one story that begins at part one, so if you haven't heard that, go back. As soon as they found their seats, Peter grabbed Jackie's shoulder and whispered at her not to trust the red-headed man. Before she could ask him how it was possible to trust a stranger seated three metres ahead on an overnight train, he'd closed his eyes and fallen instantly into a deep sleep, his head sagging against her shoulder. Peter Quinnell Live dreamed of a beautiful, tranquil supermarket parking lot. He could tell from the chill in the air and the small maple trees that dotted the border of the lot that it was autumn. No one was around. Peter looked around him and standing right there in the parking lot was a beautiful thoroughbred stallion. It was a dark, glossy brown and the light danced across its fur in the late afternoon sun. It reminded him of someone. Ever ridden on horseback before? The horse asked and Peter nodded. He reached out and grabbed a handful of the creature's mane. Not now, the horse said, winking. Wait until we get to the racetrack. Sorry, Peter replied, and he placed his two bags of groceries on the ground. He could always get more later. The racetrack was all the way across town and it took them a long time to walk, but Peter didn't really notice the distance. He had a lot to think about. By the time they arrived at the racetrack, the weak late autumn sun had slipped out of the sky. Peter crossed his fingers and hoped nobody recognised him. People had very different reactions to fame. There's nothing to worry about, the horse assured him. You just need to register me and the club will look after you. Peter felt relief flush through his body. Where? he asked. Come on, I'll take you there. The horse trotted past the bar where all the track regulars were sitting on high stools and drinking beers and leering at Peter down a long corridor to a door that was labelled registration. I can't go in, the horse said. It's just a bunch of paperwork anyway. It was a long, narrow room, and at the end was a desk with two trays on it, incoming and outgoing, and a woman behind the desk. The incoming tray was stacked absurdly high, almost to the roof, but when the woman saw Peter, she shrieked in delight. Peter Quinnell, live from Five News. Hi, Peter said. Are you here to register a racehorse? The woman asked, placing one hand on her chest suggestively. Yes, Peter replied. She giggled. I'll just need your trainer's registration number, the horse's name and the entry fee of $75 in cash if you could get that ready. I, I don't have a trainer number, Peter stammered. And his heart sank as he realised he'd left his wallet with the groceries in the parking lot of the supermarket across town. I don't have any money either, he said. Then it's lucky you came to me, the woman said. 
She scrawled a series of numbers onto the form and reached inside her bra and drew out a wad of twenties. For emergencies, she whispered and peeled off four. You don't have to do that, he said, and the woman shook her head. Of course I do, she replied. You're my favourite newsreader because you do your show live. I love it. What's the horse's name? Peter Quinnell Live realised that he couldn't remember the horse's name either. Uh, Carl, he said. The woman raised an eyebrow. Carl? Yes, Peter said. The woman pulled out a rubber stamp and crashed it down on the form. Carl will be in the second race. The best of luck to you, Peter Quinnell. She did the Catholic crossing thing. Why did you do that? Peter asked her. She looked at him suspiciously. We all need luck, don't we? I guess so, he replied, backing out the door. Well, uh, thanks for your help. The horse was waiting for Peter in the hallway, and when he saw him emerge, he whinnied. <laughs> Good job, little buddy, he said. What about a drink at the trainer's bar to celebrate? Peter nodded. This is going to be a good race, Pete. I can feel it. I feel strong today, Pete, the horse said, and reared up on his hind legs and kicked his hooves in the air. Yeehaw! My blood is alive today. The horse led Peter through the tunnels of the racetrack pavilion to the trainer's bar. A tiny, gaunt man wearing an overcoat stood at the entry and asked for their papers. Go ahead, give him the papers, Pete, the horse said. I don't have any papers, Peter whispered to the horse. Did you say you don't have any papers? <laughs> the man coughed and did some kind of hand signal in the air above his head. Peter looked around to see who the man was signalling to. Look at me, the man said. Did I hear you say you don't have any papers? Peter stared at the ground. Look me in the eyes and tell me you're a horse trainer, the man said. Peter Quinnell Live looked into the man's eyes, which were grey in the centre, but also grey where they should have been white, like the grey from the man's irises had stained the rest of his eyeballs, except for the parts where spidery red veins arced out from the centre like lightning bolts. Peter said, I am a horse trainer. Of course you are, friend, the man replied. Come on inside. He unlatched the velvet rope and made a sweeping gesture with his hand. Thank you. Peter said. He waited at a table as the horse went to the bar for some whiskey. There was a man in the corner who was looking at him in a way that made Peter feel uneasy. He couldn't say exactly how, but the man's presence radiated what Peter was sure was evil. He felt bad for thinking it. He was aware that his had been an untroubled upbringing, full of privilege, and that he'd had little contact with the ocean of human evil that some people battled against every day of their lives. And he also felt bad because the man was very short and ugly, and had disgusting red, gnarled hands with pulsing blue veins. The man touched his thigh, and Peter saw there was a lump where the man's hand was, and he shuddered. Drink up, Pete! the horse said, using his hoof to push a shot glass of whiskey across the table to where Peter was sitting. I think that man over there has a knife, Peter blurted, pointing in the direction of where the man had sat. The chair was empty now. The horse nodded. Probably, he said. A lot of the members here do. It's kind of a club tradition. Beads of sweat were forming on Peter's forehead and running into his eyes. I don't like this. I'm scared, he said, looking around the room. I'm not comfortable hanging around a bunch of knife-carrying freaks. 
Watch your mouth, the horse warned, and relax, don't be silly. As long as you stop talking like that, no one's gonna hurt you. Why should they hurt you? Have you given them a reason to want to hurt you? No, Peter said, but sometimes people just want to hurt famous people like me. The horse chuckled. You know Strasbourg, kiddo. I didn't like the way that guy was looking at me, Peter whined, and the horse told him to relax again. And then there was a chime over the intercom, and a voice said, Trainers and horses for the second race may report to the stalls. Let's go, said the horse, excitement rising in his voice. He trotted out of the bar and down the corridor, and Peter had to jog to keep up with him. The horse led him down a wide concrete tunnel and up a ramp to a service elevator, where the horse pushed S with his hoof. The doors crashed together, and Peter wished he'd brought his phone with him. They trotted through a huge stable that teemed with horses and people and down a gravel track to a corral area where the horse turned to Peter and said, Well, buddy, this is as far as you can go. Horses only from now on. He turned and walked through the gate of the corral and an old man took hold of his reins gently and led him away. Peter caught the elevator up to the members bar and sat looking apprehensively over the race course. A woman wearing a festive pink cowboy hat pulled up a stool next to him. It's a shame, she observed. Peter turned to her. What's a shame? he asked. Well, what's going to happen to you now? she told him conversationally. You probably think you were the one that wanted to come here. He had thought that. But think about it. Who spoke to whom first? Who led you here? And under what pretenses? Peter thought hard. It was difficult to remember, he found, even just a few hours, which is when he assumed he first met the horse. It couldn't have taken them longer than a few hours to cross town. But as his mind worked away at the subject, he recalled that the horse had struck up the conversation with him, and that it had proposed the journey to the racetrack with the promise of a ride on its back. Now it was gone, and it was unclear whether or not the promised ride would ever eventuate. Have you ever met that horse before? Do you even know his name? Why should you trust him? the pink cowboy hat woman pressed. Peter wasn't sure. He'd met horses before, of course. He couldn't tell her if this horse was one of them, and he was equally unsure of whether its name really was Carl or if his panicked brain had simply generated it out of nothing. His uncertainty crystallised into defensiveness. Why shouldn't I trust my horse? He sulked at the woman. She shrugged passively. She remained silent and waited for Peter to fill the gap. It worked. He's a nice horse, Peter mumbled to her. And besides, what could he do? The woman chuckled indulgently and gestured towards the floor. Pete, she said. There's all kinds of things a horse like that could do in a place like this. Things you don't want to know about. As she finished her sentence, four loud thumps shivered through the concrete floor. There was the silence, then the needling whine of a faraway saw. Peter felt panic rise in his chest again. What can I do? He asked the woman. She pushed the chair out from the high table she sat at and stepped down. Strike first, she urged. Look after yourself. Peter didn't know what she was talking about, but he nodded feverishly. She continued. If your horse is about to betray you in self-interest, why not betray it first? Is that not reasonable? Peter wanted to ask her how the horse would betray him in self-interest, but the woman had worked herself up and was pacing, her tight blonde curls rasping against the pink cowboy hat. It's not too late to take back control of the situation. 
You're still the trainer that brought him here. Have him taken care of while you still hold some cards. The woman looked around the room conspiratorially. A word in the right person's ear and you could have him scratched. scratched. Peter nodded vigorously and the woman pulled a walkie-talkie from an unseen pocket. She turned away, mumbled a few words and in a second turned back. She had a beaming smile on her face and the walkie-talkie was gone. It's taken care of, she said. She pointed over to the enormous slanted glass windows that looked over the track. Peter approached it and saw the horses filing into the starting gates. At the second from far left was Carl. He tossed his head and snorted, and as Peter watched, a man with black hair and a thick monobrow walked up beside him and opened his stall up again. The horse swung his head around as he was led clumsily backwards, and when he saw who was leading him, he let loose a giant whinny. The monobrowed man stroked Carl's snout and walked him a few paces over, and as he did, Carl's head sagged in resignation. He stopped at a patch of bare sand, and he looked up towards the clubhouse, and very, very quickly there was a silver flash in the air. The monobrowed man stepped back, a rag to clean his long glinting sabre already in hand, and Carl's head fell to the ground. A great torrent of blood jetted out. The starter pistol went off, and as the other horses began to run, the cowboy hat woman told him, Wake up, Peter. It's time. While Peter's foolish head lolled back onto the fibrous plastic headrest behind him and dreamed his stupid dream about the horse, Jackie took stock of their fellow travellers. There was a family of four who seemed to be on their way to a holiday. The father wore a pink polo shirt that his middle-aged belly stretched over a woven leather belt and bone-coloured shorts. He had curvaceous, fat thighs that flared into wide hips, a pair of ageing moccasins and short, sandy hair. His face was blank and passive, shrouded in blue from the light of a phone screen. He looked up occasionally to smile. He resembled the actor Tom Hanks. His wife had a brown bob with a stringy fringe and a pink polo shirt of her own. She wore sensible jeans and talked to her children, who might have been 12 and 8, in a sensible voice. Jackie listened for a while, as the woman called her children Tommy and Jamie. They chatted back with squeaky voices about word puzzles in the book they were passing around. There was a woman in business attire who draped a pashmina over her face and went to sleep soon after the train pulled out of Mossvale Station. Three boys who had been playing video games over the train Wi-Fi when Jackie and Peter boarded and showed no signs of stopping, and an old couple with the unmistakable downturned mouth and watery eyes of too much sadness. The kind of people who support their only son when he says he wants to quit school and become a security guard. Well, okay, it pays well. Business owners will always want protecting, and he says he's going to guard them better and stronger than anyone else. He wants to be a security guard. So he becomes a security guard and makes a good living. Starts a family, works his way up to a desk job at the security firm so he's not out at all hours. Then one night he's in a bottle shop when it gets robbed, and he gets stabbed in the neck and bleeds to death before the ambulance even gets there. Wasn't trying to be a hero, the thieves just wanted to whack the big guy. That's it. Dead. They cry bitter tears at the funeral, his parents and his little family, and then they try for a few years to forget him because it's the easiest thing to do. Of course it is. Why keep room for him in your heart, in your head, in your day? Why think about it when it'll never be fair, and it'll never bring him back? 
you think about other things until it sticks. Until it's enough. Then one night they're in the RSL getting the roast for dinner, and in a corner of the room they spot him, big and hunched over, dark hair, thick arms, leaning like the teenager used to. He's wearing the kind of cheap flannelette shirt they sell in supermarkets. They cautiously sidle around to see his profile, and he looks up at them, mild curiosity shining out of someone else's face. It's not him. Of course it isn't. He's dead in the ground. A skeleton now, perhaps. A skeleton crowbarring its way out of a mouldy coffin and dancing over their dreams. They go home and think about their skeleton. It rap-tap-taps gleefully over their thoughts, reminding them that he'll always be gone, but not so far gone that little memories won't bring him roaring back, even if they've tried to block all the memories out. They lie miserable in bed until the early morning, when the old man gets out of bed and drives out to the train line, stands next to it glum and blank for 15 minutes until a train comes roaring up the tracks, the driver leaning on the horn, and he looks up and he doesn't step out in front of it, even though he feels like he should. These were the other inhabitants of the train carriage, these and the red-headed man from the platform who'd boarded the train and greeted fondly another man, a nervous-looking fellow in his late thirties in a cheap black suit. They now sat facing each other in the seats in front of Jackie and Peter. They sat in silence to begin with. Jackie hadn't noticed the red-headed man on the platform at all. Like Peter, she had mistaken him for an unruly pile of old boxes and newspapers. But as the train pulled in and he stood, his unusual human form came into focus and she noticed the special care with which he was carrying his navy blue sports bag. As the train pulled out of town and left behind the meagre illumination of Mossvale's streetlights, the people in the carriage turned off their personal lights and nestled against the windows to sleep. The train picked up speed. It careened into the black night through moonlit paddocks, blue-white under the moon, dotted with scrub and trees, the odd shack, some ancient rusted vehicles and occasional handfuls of heavy-looking sheep. During the day, the land was yellow and brown, agricultural in name, although it was hard for most of the people who stared idly out the speeding train windows at it to understand how the long, dry stalks could sustain anything. But that was the purpose of the land all the same, to fatten sheep or cows or deer or goats for market. It was dirt and grass and the elements, and there was plenty of it, and it had to belong to someone. It required someone to burn it off every few years and to put a fence around it. It didn't belong to the government or to the indigenous people who might have once cut tracks through it. It was wild, rough land, land that belonged to farmers now. By day, heat shimmered in waves over the paddock, even in the dead of winter. By night, things were different. A mist settled over the paddocks. The air outside closed in on the train, and the red-headed man patted the seat beside him and sang, Come here. The man in the black suit obliged the request and the red-headed man giggled. Seatbelt done up? He teased. Good boy. The black suit said nothing. The redhead patted something that rustled. It'll be nice to get your hands on this, he whispered. Won't it? He gave the blue sports bag a loud thump. The blue sports bag came from inside the insulated wall of a Hamburg Sud shipping container, which, as it happened, had come from the city of Hamburg, Germany. Not every shipping container bearing the name Hamburg Sud originated in Hamburg, but this one did. 
In a mechanics garage in the town of Schneverdingen, it had been packed with a total of $1.2 million in different currencies. It had travelled up the autobahn to Hamburg, where 200,000 euros had been removed and distributed to port officials. It had been stuffed into a neat lined hole in the shipping container and a steel panel replaced over it. In Hong Kong, the container had been opened again and one million Hong Kong dollars removed. In Jakarta, $140,000 US was retrieved. At Port Botany in Sydney, the container reached its destination. The vehicle parts inside were loaded on a truck and taken to a distributor's warehouse. The blue sports bag was relieved of 150,000 Australian dollars and placed under the back seat of a commuter bus that travelled up the M5 freeway to the Southern Highlands, west of Sydney. At 8pm it had reached its destination at Mossvale train station and the bus driver had removed the key from the ignition but left the door unlocked as he strolled up to the Argyle Hotel for a quiet beer. Shortly afterwards, the red-headed man had slipped aboard, retrieved the sports bag and settled down on the platform to wait for the interstate train where he'd meet the client. The client would be identifiable by a black suit. His only possession would be a train ticket. He had engaged the red-headed man to help him start a new life in Melbourne. The black-suited man turned and through the gap between the headrests, Jackie saw a face that, despite exhaustion and the beginnings of wrinkles, was handsome, with a long pointed nose and a neat pencil moustache. Thank you, he said. It'll change everything. I should thank you again. I'm just feeling a bit nervous. Perfectly normal, the red-headed man responded in a loud sing-song. He poked his head up over the seat and quickly scanned the carriage, a mischievous grin on his face. Everyone feels a little nervous, he continued, particularly when it's their first time in another city. He laughed. You've never been to Melbourne? Fantastic, fantastic, you'll adore it. No, no, the suit man told him. It seemed to Jackie his voice was sad. First time. Oh, to see it again for the first time, the red-headed man declared exuberantly. Beautiful city, culture everywhere, the Paris of the South, you know, he added, to which the suit man nodded. Full of culture, full of culture, beautiful, the art. You like art? You've never seen art like this. Incredible, in the streets. That's cool, the suit man said. Is it all there? I, I'm just, I mean, I trust Jeff, but what if it's not all there? Every last cent. Trust me, Jeff knows if he fucked up something like this. The red-headed man chuckled and mimed opening a briefcase, assembling a sniper rifle, taking aim, squeezing the trigger and a bullet exploding ahead. You leave worrying about that to me. Suddenly, with incredible speed, the red-headed man jumped out of his seat and stared straight at Jackie, who'd hunched forward, one ear tilted towards the gap between the seats to listen to their conversation. Jackie flinched and jerked backwards in her seat. He narrowed his eyes and turned to the suit man. Why don't you visit the little boy's room? I've got something I need to take care of. Thanks for listening to The Horse and the Rider. It's written, read and produced by me, Max Laverne. If you'd like to support it, you can make a donation at ko-fi.com slash maxlaverne. And please send me a message. You can DM me on Twitter, prawn underscore meat. I love it when people get in touch about The Horse and the Rider. 
If you know anyone who's into vestibules, make sure you tell them about this podcast because next week in episode 11, a fair bit of the action takes place in a vestibule. So it's a great time to get in vestibuled, as they might say.